Can we say good morning again? Good morning, good morning right? A day that the Lord has made, indeed. We um, are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we've already seen so far that uh, the Corinthian church had sin problems. And we're not uh, too unfamiliar with that, are we? We, uh, as a church today and all throughout the ages, has had its uh, sin problems. Corinth just uh, gets exposed here right in Scripture. Uh, what would happen if all the churches down through the uh, history of the church would be put in the Bible? We, we couldn't carry it with us. <laughs> it would be way too thick. But uh, the first problem that Paul is addressing is disunity in uh, the Corinthian church among the members. Under uh, That was all undergirded by the very strong ties of philosophy. Uh, that's what they were familiar with. The world's wisdom is what the Corinthians had sought after, and they were still holding on tightly to that kind of thinking, even when they were Christians, and uh, even into quite, quite some time. So they blended in the Greek wisdom with the wisdom of God, the truth of His Word, and uh, this is the problem uh, that arises then when that happens. They had their favorite leaders in philosophy. Now they slide over into the church and now some of them have their favorite leaders and other ones that they don't like at all. And so they have the party spirit going on. We've looked at this uh, the past couple of weeks. This causes factions. And uh, so they, they had that. The church has to be unified in its thinking. Uh, the doctrine has to be one, doesn't it? They were one in uh, the apostles' teaching uh, when the early church started. They were one in that uh, kind of true philosophy. They were like-minded. They are to be like-minded. We are uh, commanded constantly to be like-minded. Christ cannot be divided, can He? So therefore, the church cannot be divided, although sometimes it looks like that. John Piper had... Uh, commented on this section. He said, what Paul really wants to show in this chapter is that the reason there is so much pride and boasting at Corinth is that they're not letting the cross have its crucifying effect in the present time period. And then he goes on to say, they think they have advanced beyond the cross. The cross may have been necessary to get them over the problem of sin, but now they are filled and rich and wise and strong, the Corinthians are. They are kings. Paul alludes to that in chapter 4. In their own eyes, they are kings. The weakness of the cross, the foolishness of the cross, as Paul has called it that, at least from the eyes of the world, the humiliation of the cross, these things are long gone to the Corinthians and they have moved on and they are kings. And so you see the very irony that uh, Paul has to use in his language. It's agonizing when you look into chapter 4, and verses 8 through 11. We'll be getting into that as the weeks go on. So he continues with a lot of that same kind of thought. They were not taking up the cross daily. And that's where the problem all lies, I think, uh, for all of us. Uh, Piper went on to say they were taking up their scepter daily, the king's scepter. They were sitting on their throne daily. 
They were leaving in the past what belongs in the present, that namely being the cross. And the result was that the cross was being emptied of its power. It didn't have the power, the effect on their lives because of their pride. Pride contaminates everything that's good. So they weren't taking up that cross daily. And that, that is the point here. The wisdom of the world falls so far short of God's wisdom, doesn't it? It cannot compare. Paul has written on that. We've discussed that the last two weeks. And as we move into chapter 2, it just kind of continues on with that same thinking. Paul just writes a superb section here that's just incredible about the wisdom of God and how it's given to His people. And if God doesn't select to give it to certain people, they'll never get it. That's what he's going to be running into. Why would anybody, like Christians, want what the world's wisdom is about, and the world's wisdom is the answers to life, how we got here, how we're to live this kind of life, and where we're going. If it's not God's wisdom, it's all wrong, isn't it? If it's not uh, of God. In fact, human wisdom, I think, is a great hindrance to the gospel. We've seen to the Jews and to the Gentiles uh, how much of an offense and a stumbling block and foolishness it is to them. But true divine wisdom is a beautiful thing. So believers see the cross and they see the power of the cross. Believers should die daily and recognize that that cross is not only in the past, but it's a present tense for us. And we see the power of God there at the cross. And we see the wisdom of God there at the cross. And we've seen last week when we um, finished that section uh, ending up in chapter 1 where it says that we obtain His wisdom, His righteousness, His sanctification and redemption. That's all His. We have been given that. And we obtained that not through human wisdom, did we? It wasn't because of our great minds and our intellect, which I know we all have, but we couldn't get there that way. And what the Corinthians need to be reminded is the message that Paul presented whenever he went into Corinth and the manner that he presented it. Um, He's going to remind them that he didn't come in there with the powerful words of his own but he came in with the power of the cross and only believers only the ones that God has really chosen are going to be able to understand these things of God divine wisdom cannot be understood by human wisdom so don't ever expect unbelievers to understand it unless God opens their heart up that means we're to go out and give the jewels of the truth of what the gospel is about but still relying upon God to get to do that harvest. We know it's, it's going to be Him. But uh, eventually it's going to be revealed by God to His elect. In the age we live in today, we need to remember also, like the Corinthians need to remember, we, we need to remember the great benefits that we have been given. Look back at the cross. Keep on looking at the cross because that is where we get our strength our power, our wisdom, everything that we have, and everything that has been given to us, 
And we are not to take in the vain philosophies that is being offered in our times. Let's look at the first five verses in chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul comes to Corinth. He comes there presenting the gospel, not through human efforts or the wisdom. He didn't come there to impress the Corinthians with all of the great knowledge that he had, which he did have a lot of knowledge and wisdom that God given him. But he didn't try to show off himself. What he was bringing forth was Jesus Christ and uh, Him crucified. He doesn't try to put on display His great oratory skills and knowledge. So he starts off with a negative. We'll see this through these first five verses. A negative and then the positive. Uh, The first is a negative. uh, When I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech. Okay, his proclamation. What about that proclamation? Well, he's not a philosopher. And if you're a Greek... That's really who you came to see. That's the show. That's what it's all about. Let's see the philosopher. Let's see how great his speech is. He didn't have excellency of speech, not the way that the world would judge it. Believe me, his speech was excellent. It's the very Word of God. And I'm sure that Paul knew how to speak. But he's using it in this way that he didn't come with human uh, opinions whether it be on politics or psychology or the, the economic situation or all the different facets of, of what makes up the world or even religion for that matter. He didn't come with, with that kind of speak. And he didn't come in persuading them with smooth speech and flower that people just be so taken by. He's such a good speaker. I've heard of that so many times of certain people that maybe like might be pastors. But uh, they were either new age, they were very liberal, but man, people would say, he's such a great speaker. And the people would be flocking to hear this great speaker who had absolutely nothing to offer them. Have you ever heard of such speakers? They're so flowery. And and you're thinking, time, this is not that good at all anyway. You know, if it doesn't have the truth, if it's not really getting down to the very root of the Word of God, this is not good. I don't care how he puts words together, you know, if it's not based upon that. So he comes directly from Athens, not too far from Corinth. He delivered that famous message at the Areopagus about the unknown God. And he had been contesting the philosophers even there, hadn't he? And he didn't try to imitate the philosophers. He visits Athens. He says, oh, wow, I see these guys and these guys talk. Maybe I can put in a little bit of the kind of uh, the language that they use. And maybe I can impress people that way and get people to, to notice me and what I'm bringing here. 
But uh, when he comes into Corinth, he doesn't come in with, with the style of a philosopher. He, he didn't use their kind of verbiage, the way they use their words. Well, Paul has to defend himself quite frequently, especially as he writes a letter in, uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. Later on, he writes this one letter that we have in the Word of God today. And some people are calling him a false teacher. He's false. Hey, just look at him. He can't even speak good. And look at him physically, the little blind guy, you know, whatever. Verse 10, look at this. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Yeah, he can write some fancy nice stuff there, but you know, look at the guy. He has, has these letters, and, uh, but, uh, and then other times you'll see that he had to write big, you know, and, and so some people said that he had uh, eye vision problems. But his bodily presence, it definitely doesn't draw people, and, and his speech, it's nothing like the philosophers. This is, I'm sure that he could have been a very good orator in his own right, very well educated. He had all of the, uh, the abilities to do that and the education, but he used the Word of God and to glorify God and to make Him the star of it all, not, not Paul. Um, it's interesting, though, other people would take Paul differently. Of course, the ones who uh, are led to the truth, they recognize that uh, this is the wisdom of God. In Acts 14.12, you have some people at Lystra that they know the gods of Zeus and Hermes. And uh, it's Paul and Barnabas that are there in Lystra. And the people there heard great speaking that they had. I mean, they were overwhelmed by it. And they thought they were the gods. And so we look in Acts 14. Let's pick it up at verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done and raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. <laughs> Here's the gods. And they, there they come in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus. You've heard of Zeus. And Paul, Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Chief speaker. So they recognized that this man is saying some great things. They even said they were gods. So it wasn't that Paul just stumbled all over the place and couldn't speak. <laughs> I mean, like I say the word speak and my voice goes, Ugh, my voice has changed. I'm at that age. <laughs> Nick, hope it's okay. Your voice is, has already changed and you've gone through that thing. You know, That's, that's where I'm at. My voice is changing. Nondor's, he's in the process of changing there. But you don't recognize it too much because he doesn't sing. Anyway. Some recognized that he was something special. He did use attractive speech. So don't get it that, you, that uh, he didn't know how to do this. But he's not putting himself on display. He's putting God on display. Well, there's the negative thing. I didn't come that way. Well, what's the positive that he does here in 1 Corinthians? Declared to you the testimony of God. Declared. He came as a witness. And that's where you get uh, the connection with testimony. I declared to you the testimony of God. He came as a witness instead of a philosopher. 
He's not a philosopher. He is a witness. Now this means he testified of what he saw, what he heard, what he experienced. That's what he's doing. He's, he's testifying or he's telling what happened. Who this God is. This is what he saw, heard, and experienced. A witness is not to speculate or guess. Right? A witness tells what he knows to be the truth. And nothing but the truth. So this is Paul. What, this is what he did. He tells the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> Back to the dragnet days. Paul witnessed to God's revelation. God had revealed things to him. And he tells what God revealed. So it wasn't anything of his own reasoning whatsoever, was it? It was all from God. He communicated to them a treasure. The world had the treasure of treasures when the Word of God was spoken by Paul and the apostles. Whenever they went into these cities and these people heard it the first time, this was the treasure of all treasures. It's the treasure of wisdom. It's the treasure of wisdom about God. Many people responded to that who were drawn. Others thought it was foolishness. He gave them the truest the highest wisdom ever that they'd ever heard. And there he is. He had been in the capital city of philosophy. And now he comes to Corinth in another area that is uh, so sinful. But they carry on that Greek tradition too. So the testimony of God is martyrion. Martyr. It became so known that when you gave a testimony, you became a martyr. And so that's how we get our English word. Martyr. He's a witness. Sometimes when you tell the truth, you tell what happened and who God is, you give those facts, people may disdain you. They may hate you. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul gave truth. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor of handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, bringing it out clearly so that people can see, revealing His truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And that's where he goes on to say that great verse, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. That's what happens. Let there be light, God said, and our hearts was opened up to God's truth. That's what happened to us, didn't it? That's what Paul preached. Can you see how that could be offensive? So you can't come in God's or uh, in your own wisdom to, to God. First uh, Timothy four verse thirteen. Paul was faithful to the Word of God. He continued to preach and teach that, and he has to remind Timothy as he writes in a letter in four thirteen of Timothy, "Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine." Two thousand years later, that's the same message today. Did you just see what we read there? Give attention to reading this Word. 
to exhortation, that's to exhort that word, and to doctrine. That's the, the teaching of it. And he says, don't neglect your gift that you have. Make sure you bring that. That is what the church is about. That's what we are to do. It's, we're given instructions right there, aren't we? Second um, Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Those pastoral letters are good for anybody to read, especially pastors need to constantly have this in mind. I charge you therefore before God. That's a good enough charge right there, isn't it? Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom? He's going to judge. I think this is a serious charge as Paul reminds Timothy, listen, here's what you do. Before God, the one who judges, preach the Word. Now, my version has an exclamation point right there. Do you have one of those two? I don't know if that's in the Greek or not, but I'm telling you, that is what it's about. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort. And the balance with all long suffering and teaching. Then you get that famous verse. For time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Turn away from the truth. So, that's happened throughout the church age. It happens today. And so therefore people don't like what the messenger has to say and either they have something to say about it or they, they, they want to get other teachers for themselves that makes them feel much better. The Word of God is to be preached. That's what Paul did when he came into Corinth. I declare to you the testimony of God. The martyrion. Uh, I just gave testimony to the crucifixion. To the crucified Christ. Jesus Christ crucified. That's what I knew. So verse 2, For I determined, He set His mind, that no matter what, no matter what kind of persecution that He would go through, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him Him crucified. Paul came as a witness. Right? We've seen that. He proclaims nothing but Jesus Christ, the crucified. He's the redeeming one. He'll bring you out of that bondage. Jesus is the divine Savior. Christ is at the heart of every message. He's the very foundation of Paul's preaching. So he's telling Timothy to preach the Word. Christ is the very focus of all that. Now, philosophy can do this about this man, Jesus Christ. It can do something. It can extol the life of Jesus, this great teacher, this great philosopher, this one of great wisdom. Right? So you hear people put in Jesus along with other people. Men. They'll compare Jesus with men. So they can extol his life and and all the good things that he did and he was a picture of what love is to be. But preaching proclaims Christ crucified. Yeah, he lived a perfect life and that is very important. But the heart of it is all is that he came here to be crucified. And by the way, it doesn't just mean that we should preach an evangelistic message every time we get together. 
Paul, oh, did, is that all he did? He just gave a, an evangelistic message and he did, uh, let's see, like what Billy Graham does or some of the evangelists and that's all they do? Uh, no, uh, Paul did not neglect the whole counsel of God. You remember him using that phrase? He preached the whole counsel, everything that's there. But what is at the center of the whole counsel of God? Christ crucified. That's, that is the focus, but it wasn't that he just had one message. He had one message, and everywhere he'd go, he'd use exactly the same words, and um, you know he had it all printed out, and, and uh, that's what he would go from church to church or uh, from town to town. Uh, he would uh, still have Christ crucified, but he would appeal to them to where they were at at the time. But the same message is there, Christ. Um, all the Word of God. Look in 1 Corinthians 1.23. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. Still there today. Christ crucified reveals what man is. When you look at the cross, what Christ did, what does it do? It shows that man is painfully sinful. Man is spiritually dead. The cross brings that forth. It reveals what God is. And shows the holiness of God that He would send His Son to make a payment for the many. A ransom for the many. The payment had to be done. God is holy. God cannot accept sinful people into His kingdom. Something has to be done. The cross reveals what sin is. The cross reveals the ugliness of it. When you think of the cross, you think of Christ dying in such a violent way that He did, how seriously He took the matter of sin. Because He is holy. Jesus drank the bitterest dregs of the cup, didn't He? He took every bit of our sin. Even the worst. And then the cross also reveals what salvation is. What it really is. The cross defeated sin. The cross defeated death. The cross gives us life. There had to be death before there was life. It revealed God's power. My, the cross. Christ crucified. Piper said the cross is not merely a past place of substitution. And it is. Substitutionary atonement. But it's not just that. It's also a present place of daily execution. It happened. It's real. It's historical. It's spiritual. But today, it is still going on in our lives because we are to daily execute. We are to mortify our sins, as it says in Colossians. John Owen wrote that great book about the crucifixion of our sins, or the killing, or the mortification of sin, as he wrote. And that's what we are to do. The execution of pride, the execution of boasting in men. That's what Paul is addressing here when he talks about the crucifixion of Christ. The execution of self-reliance. No longer to rely on ourselves. The execution of the love of money. The execution of status. None of those things are important to who Christ is, is it? The execution of the praise of men. This is why when Paul walked into Corinth with a cross to preach, a Christ to preach, 
instead of some kind of poetry or some great quotes that he had or something dealing with economics. And we hear so much today about the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy. I know, I know. (laughs) Who wants to keep hearing about that? Paul came in. The message of the cross. Now, verses 3 through 5, we get the demonstration. It's negative. Remember, we've done the negative and we've done the positive. Now we come in the demonstration, we get a negative and then a positive. I was with you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. And there's your negative. I didn't come in that way. I came weak. I had a weak message. That's weak to the world. The weakness is the gospel, which is really the power of God, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 1.25 He's already mentioned this. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Get all the strength that mankind has ever had mounted all together. Take all the men of history put them together with all their great wisdom and you can think of the great inventions and the great scientists and philosophers. Put them all together and their wisdom cannot compare with God's wisdom. Not even close. Can't compare. Weakness of the gospel. Verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things which are mighty. And there we go again. That's that text we were in last week. That's talking about Him choosing us. Totally goes against the grain of what the world would have done. Aren't you thankful that it's not just kings that get into the kingdom. Matter of fact, most are not going to be kings and political leaders. It's going to be the lowly, as we had looked at. That's the way that God works. So he's to get all the glory. Chapter 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. But it's weak, Paul. Oh, he says, I don't have any choice. That's all I can preach. There's nothing to boast of. It's it's all God's thing anyway, isn't it? Second Corinthians twelve. Paul, one of the thorn removed in his flesh. When you get into verse 9, God told him something. He said, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So the weakness that he has is realizing that he's nothing but God's gospel is everything. He is weak. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, my diseases, my sicknesses, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So when we're weak, He is strong. And He is put on display. Same language of weakness there, isn't it? 
Jesus says to him, My power is made perfect in your weakness. What good can Christ do for the world through unworthy me? What good can He do working through me? It wasn't that Paul came in there, How much power can I muster for Jesus here? It wasn't that, was it? Sounds good. But the question is, how much power can Jesus show through my weakness? Fear and trembling. Back to 1 Corinthians. Fear and trembling. You think he came in there shaking in his sandals? I'm nervous. I don't know how to speak in front of these people. (laughs) I don't think that's the kind of fear and trembling that that he has. He can't wait to preach the, the gospel He's not timid. We know that he preached boldly, but it does mean he has a deep concern over an all-important and urgent issue. So there's a meekness, there's a trembling here because he knows that he is inadequate. The inadequacy that he has is so great, the stakes are so high, you have lost people here. And the dangers are real. If he had been ran out of towns already, which he had, and if people were out to kill him, there is that human sense that he knows that his life could be taken. But yet he has it in perspective. Paul was not without a sense of having some kind of anxiety in the human sense, but there was a control of that. You know, the fruit of the Spirit comes in there or to have uh, control because of Him. But He was undaunted whenever He would be in the midst of crises. You probably remember so many times that He would just continue to keep preaching that Word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I've been referring to 2 Corinthians quite a bit today, haven't we? Well, it's definitely an extension off of 1 Corinthians, but Different letter at the time. In 7.15, he says, And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. This was about Titus. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians saying that uh, with fear and trembling, they received Titus coming in there, and that they, they, uh, there was uh, much respect for him coming in there, knowing the word of God, and uh, they took it very seriously. They were con- they had deep concern there. Uh, there was urgent issues. If we look in Ephesians chapter six, verse five, we see fear and trembling again. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in sincerity heart as to Christ. So there's a proper fear, a proper trembling that we should have even before God, but even before men. Slaves that had masters were to be uh, obedient to them, and they were to have an, a, a, a reverence, a, a, a proper fear of them in that position that... Uh, God had put them in, recognizing that. So um, that's the kind of thought that we have here. Uh, not necessarily just shaking so much that he's, he's scared. You know, it's, it's not that. Uh, look in Philippians 2.12. Fear and trembling again. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for His good pleasure. Uh, Total awe and respect and reverence there. Fear and trembling. So Paul used that um, quite a lot. And uh, he was meek. And uh, he always recognized that he was inadequate in himself. Now, Paul had been in Philippi earlier, before he came to Corinth. And when he was in Philippi, where did they uh, put, put him at? They put him in jail. In there. He went to Thessalonica after that, and Berea, and he was ran out of there. Then he went to Athens, and he was scoffed at. They're presenting their great worldly wisdom, and what a fool this guy is coming in preaching about a man dying and then come back to life. How ridiculous! That's where Paul has been. That's his last little journey. Uh, fear and trembling. He's recognizing that um, people need this gospel. And now he comes into pagan Corinth. People who had been Corinthianized. And so he's going to bring the gospel to these Corinthians. <laughs> uh, I'm not going there. you know. Boy, you know, I could almost think that. Why would I want to go into that den of vipers? Into Corinth, into New Orleans, into Miami, into New York, into San Francisco, into <laughs> you name them. You think of all the cities in, in the United States. They're all Corinthianized. He could have been discouraged. He could have had a lot of fear. What had happened to him? Just one time in jail being thrown in there is enough, but then people are after you and they chase you from city to city. He's not worried about his own life. That's not the kind of fear that Paul has here, knowing him and looking at all this. He, he could have lived out in the flesh and started really fearing this, but he had one message to proclaim and he knew what it was and he never changed it. It was not with persuasive words as we had seen in 2 Corinthians 10.10 earlier. Okay, that's the negative. It wasn't in that way and he's fearing and trembling and, and um, he is weak Talks about his speech. But the positive is this. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Speaking of that power, you know, men have made huge advances in the bomb. Of course, we think of the bomb that happened in World War II and Hiroshima. That was the biggest thing that man had ever seen as far as what weaponry had done. What a bomb. If that can do that and destroy a whole city like that, do all that damage, what could man do now? That's quite a power to be able to take out a city, isn't it? Now we know that there's power enough to take out a nation. Think of the atomic power the Word of God far exceeds that because it can take a dead man and bring him back to life. <laughs> now that's power, isn't it? It's not destructive. It's constructive. It brings a man into life. Paul comes in there, doesn't use theatrics, he doesn't use techniques or emotional appeals. He didn't just try to draw them by, you know, his that kind of speech. He had these 
skills, but he didn't rely on them. He didn't want them to be drawn to him and to his uh, own wisdom. Charles Spurgeon talks about the authority of the Word of God. The power that is in the Gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would convert souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we had exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give the power to convert the soul. C.H. had it right. Let me tell you, that was one of the greatest preachers that the church has never known, has ever known. Eloquent, had great mannerisms from the pulpit, preached the Word of God. He'd use some illustrations and he'd use uh, continually other scripture. Always coming back. He knew the Word of God. though, And that's what he preached. That's what it was about. People were drawn to C.H. Spurgeon. God used that man. But he didn't want them to be drawn to him and how great he was, even though he was considered great amongst the people in London. People who are not believers love to hear C.H. Spurgeon preach. Some of them came to Christ. Some didn't. But about the wisdom that, or the authority, let's put it that way, the authority that comes from the pulpit is not the preacher's authority or wisdom or some kind of private revelation. My words myself as I stand here insofar as what I present should be nothing but repetition and unfolding and bringing forth application of what is already here. The words of Scripture. Uh, I have authority only because I stand under the authority. Anytime you go out and preach or teach, give the Gospel out, you have the authority. The authority is the Word of God. You stand underneath that. Our corporate symbol, right here, even right now, as, as we sit here today, is the sound of your Bible turning to different pages of Scripture and going to that. Or if you're electronic, you're... Beep, beep, beep. They don't even do that. Honey. i got to keep up with the times. But you know what I mean? As we do that, that shows honor to God. Uh, opening up that text. Because we know the authority is there. We know that's where it's at. It sure is not uh, under the authority of the messenger, although he's under that authority to give it, and that authority is given out then, though. There is, there is that authority. But um, there shouldn't be anything that's said, some kind of opinions about things that are not really scriptural. Uh, if it can't be shown by Scripture, then it has no special authority, does it? It's absolutely worthless if it's not in Scripture to show. Sometimes we might have ideas what things are and present them. Uh, they might be right and they may not. Sometimes when we have our own interpretations, we have to be careful, but it could very well mean that. Uh, but remember, it, this, this authority of the Word of God is what it's, uh, what it's about. Uh, demonstration of the power of God. They, they changed spiritually. They knew they, were, they had been dead. The message has the power of God. Paul's reminding them of, uh, of that. Let's look at the last section, 6 through 10. This really shouldn't be the last section because it keeps on going but that's where we're going to stop today however we speak wisdom among those 
who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. This is an incredible text. I don't know how many times In our Bible studies, we've turned to this section. Sometimes it almost seems weekly. W-E-E-K-L-Y, not W-E-A-K. This is is about power anyway, isn't it? It's the power of God. We're going to do a positive and a negative here. This time he turns around, we speak wisdom. We speak wisdom. To the mature. Those who are mature. He said, who are those? Well, that's the guys up on the higher rung. That's the guys who, you know, we hear preach on radio. That's the guys who've written books. It's the guys in the seminaries. It's the preachers and the teachers. Or you got those people who are really spiritual. That's the mature, right? Would you take it as that? Sometimes it can be that way. If you look in chapter 3, uh, he talks about uh, the carnal, uh, the spiritual people, uh, but babes in Christ. But that's not exactly what he's talking about here. The mature, the word is teleos. It means to bring to completion. It means to be perfect, to be fully initiated. Um, We see that kind of thought in uh, Hebrews 6, for instance, let's say. But the mature are the ones who are redeemed. The mature are the ones who trust in Christ. It's not that there's some who are advanced in the faith and they understand the wisdom of God and the other ones, they don't know those kind of things. Yeah, it's not that. It's about salvation here. And if we stay with the text, we we see how that that develops. Paul is not making a distinction here amongst Christians. But he is making a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. So the mature here are the ones who have been made perfect in wisdom. Going back to verse 30 in chapter 1. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is our wisdom. Now, there are things to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. We're not taking that away. But we have everything we need. So, uh, I think we, we see the, uh, the wisdom there. If you go into Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 8 and 9, again we see uh, wisdom that is given to us uh, like this, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. 
It was His will. It was His pleasure. It was His whole purpose that we would be able to understand the mystery of the ages. Incredible. As we sit here today, being weak people that we are, we know the high things of God. Because of God. I'm not boasting. I can only boast in the Lord. Because I've already seen, and that's what this text is saying, I couldn't have come up with this. I never could have come up with this. And no man ever can. The ones who are mature are the ones now. It's a different word now. Mature sounds better than some of the words we've seen already. But you remember how Paul was speaking? Go back a little bit in verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. <laughs> That's overwhelming. That's, that, you know, Paul goes to the extreme here to show who are the mature. Well, the mature are the ones that are these. They're, they're the weak. They're, they're the ones who mature. What? What did I just say? <laughs> Colossians 1, 26. Oh, this is that prayer. And in this Colossian letter, you get a lot of things there that are like Ephesians in a little more miniature form. Colossians 1, 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to His saints. That sounds like our Ephesians study, doesn't it? It's already been revealed. His wisdom of the ages, the secret, <laughs> the mystery. It's been revealed. Matthew eleven twenty five. We've used this so many times. Jesus speaks a hard saying here. The only ones that know Him will know what He's saying. At that time, Jesus answered and said, He just said a, an overwhelming statement about Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And He's talking about judgment. Judgment was going to be more on them than it would ever Sodom. And people say, Paul, how can you say that? Or Paul, I mean Jesus. <laughs> At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, so it seemed good in your sight. That was good. He took pleasure in doing that. Don't you like that verse? Matthew 13, 10-13. Parable. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Tell us what does this mean? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
we keep reading, but go down to verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Because He revealed it to them. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what Peter said. Jesus said, you didn't say that by your own thinking. Father in Heaven revealed that to you. That's the reason you can say that. So, there's... The positive is, is to the mature. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not of the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. That's negative language there. The age here that we're speaking of, not of this age, or the rulers of the age, is speaking the rulers uh, or, or the age. Robert Rabin says that Paul was speaking of all periods of history, all throughout mankind's ages. Um, by rulers of the age, Rayburn says that Paul is referring to the leaders of the culture, the opinion shapers of the, of the time, the great teachers, the political officers, the very people these Corinthian churches or Christians were so enamored of. They were following those guys. These influential may think of themselves as wise, but in actual fact, they don't get it, Rayburn says. They have embraced the lie, not the truth. And of course, the same is true today. Robert Raven, the great uh, Presbyterian pastor, is, uh, who was a professor at Covenant Seminary. Thank you. A lot of wisdom that comes out of there. Human wisdom is just passing away. It don't last forever. It's empty. The rulers can't claim really true wisdom. And the rulers of this age are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God and the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who are these guys? None of the rulers of this age knew. For they had, had, if they had known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, I think specifically we can say the Jewish leaders. If they'd really known what that was about, they wouldn't have done that. But in God's wisdom, that's the way it was going to be done. But had they really, if they had known that like we know it, would you kill the Messiah? But he has to be killed. Well, that can toss around in your mind for a long time, can't it? That's why Paul or uh, Peter mentioned that in Acts 2. Paul even, uh, he knew that he acted in ignorance all the time before he became a Christian. Uh, Look in 1 Timothy 1 as he uh, writes to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. He gave me the power. Because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And they oh, Paul, man, you're bragging now, aren't you? <laughs> well, he's talking about God's power. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He was ignorant. He really didn't know those things. Why didn't he know those things? He studied him because God hadn't opened up his heart yet. That's why he didn't know those things. If any man could have known those things, it would have been the Saul. For his Paul. I mean, he was as studied as any man of his time. And he still couldn't, couldn't come to the truth on his own. I was ignorant in unbelief. 
like verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then he said, he came here, Christ came to save sinners. I'm chief, Paul says. So, we, we see the origin of wisdom when we see that it was ordained before the ages, as it says in verse 7. He ordained this wisdom to be put upon certain people. He gave them truth. This was the eternal counsel of God given to us for nothing of us that He did that. Incredible. Predestined, mystery, hidden wisdom, before the ages, all in that divine counsel, however your mind can even think of that. Before time began, God determined to give us His wisdom that it would lead to our glorification. We're not glorified yet. We're looking to that time. In the meantime, we put on display His wisdom. The church is doing that. One of these days it will put on a display that would be totally beyond what we even can think of today. That's what it says in verse 7. Ordained before the ages for our glory. Of course, it all goes back to glorify Him. As we are glorified, He's even, in, in another sense, more glorified. When we give Him perfect praise, we're weak today in our praising. But when we give Him perfect praise, He's even going to be more glorified. Not that God needs it. He already has that glory. But we will see in Him in His glory in a way that we can't fathom right now. Nobody knew about this stuff. The natural man does not know. He does not understand it. In man's ignorance, he crucified the Son of God. Had God revealed it to them, then they wouldn't have crucified. But that's in the plan. The, the, word, uh, the world was just saturated with philosophy. Saturated there in Athens and Corinth. But was absolutely ignorant of the greatest truth of all. Totally blinded as it says in 2 Corinthians 4. Now, we're right at the end here. And I don't really want to pass over it. Who knows, we might spend a little more time on it next week. But um, he makes a quote out of the Old Testament, out of Isaiah. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. This is an incredible passage, divinely uh, revealed here. Paul's not talking about the wonders of heaven. You might have, many people have used this as 
speaking about the future tense and the heaven there will be. No eye has seen that. No ear has heard. Not entered into the heart of man. I can see why people would say that. I can see why I have said it. But that text is not about that. Where we have, have been and where it's going is saying... Um, God has already prepared for His believers this wisdom. He's given it to them. It's about present life, even right now. The point is that the natural eyes, the natural ears, the natural mind cannot get into the thinking of God. They cannot understand, cannot understand God's wisdom. It's prepared for those who love Him. They have His wisdom. That's us. All who trust in Him. God's truth is not observable by the eye, by the ear, by the mind. It cannot reason out God's secret. That's where we have already been talking about, haven't we? All through this message. And that's why He uses this now to anchor what He has just been revealed by God as He's written it down. Then He also puts another scripture in there to make it even more certain just so they'd say, well, that's your opinion. God's wisdom cannot be discovered by the mind. God chooses to let one know of His wisdom and He has done that already. It's to be revealed to. God's truth is not discoverable by eye, ear, or mind. God has made it known to us through the Spirit. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit for the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. There's the key to unlocking the whole mystery. The Holy Spirit. The Lord illumines us with the Spirit of God. Comes in, turns the light on, and God all of a sudden elevates our minds by His Spirit into eternal truths. What a great thought. What a great God. Thank You, Lord, for Your wisdom. Father, we praise You. We cannot help but just to think of the things You have done. You have many people out there, Lord, who have been chosen, but they're not believers yet. And they're just waiting for maybe some of us to go out and give them that truth so You would wake them up. Bring them to life. It all comes from You. We had never known. We would have never been here where we are today in our walks with You had it not been for You, Your Word of God, Your Spirit of God, Christ crucified, so dear that is to us, that thinking. Thank You for bringing us into that thought. In Your Son's name, Amen.